This episode of the 343 podcast is supported by Bounce Athletics. Bounce Athletics is offering you an additional 10% discount because they know that you are serious about high-quality soccer products if you are listening to this show. Training balls from Bounce Athletics can be customized with your logo and your color scheme and will only cost you about $15 to $20 per ball. And if you compare similar textured training balls from Nike, Adidas, or Select, those would be in the $50 to $60 range. Now, I've personally tested the balls from Bounce Athletics. They feel great. They look great. They roll great. They hold air, which is super important. They are legit, and I highly recommend them. To top everything off, Bounce Athletics will send you complimentary mock-ups of what your balls will look like with your logo on them. Just email your logo to info at Bounce Athletics to begin the order process. And remember to mention 343 so you get that additional 10% discount when you place your order. This is the 343 Podcast. I'm your host, John Pronich. Welcome to the show. It's difficult to wrap your head around how much Dr. Joe Machnick has done over the course of his career. He is an iconic American soccer figure with experience as a player, a coach, a referee, and even a broadcaster. And that's how most people might know him these days. But it's only fitting that this conversation with Dr. Joe touches on so many of those topics. And you will hear him share stories about the state of soccer in the late 50s and early 60s. He shares stories about the history of the ethnic leagues and the subculture of American soccer that players and fans were a part of. And like I just mentioned, he's known as a special commentator and a rules expert during Fox broadcasts. But that expertise has been forged over the course of decades. And during that time, he has made an incredibly positive impact at virtually every level of the sport here in America, from youth soccer camps all the way to the World Cup. And people frequently ask me what my favorite episode of the podcast is, and and it changes. It it changes from time to time. And right now, this one is entering the top five, and it's a very special conversation. It's somebody that has seen just about everything that there is to see in American soccer. And it just reminds me that, you know, 45 minutes or, or one hour is not even close to enough with uh, with somebody that has this type of knowledge about the sport that I that I grew up loving and that I still love today, so I'm, I'm super happy and super super proud to share this conversation and to actually just have had the chance to have had the conversation to begin with. But uh, I hope that you guys enjoy it, and if you like this episode, it would mean the world to me if you if you shared it with other coaches, with other parents, players, fans, referees, administrators, whoever, because I think that there's a lot to learn from Dr. Joe Machnick. Um, if you if you do, just enjoy the show in general. You can always subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or Google Play. And if you're feeling super nice and generous, you can give the show a five-star rating. That would also mean the world to me. And if you really want to support the 343 Podcast and help keep the show going, the best way to do that is by joining the 343 Premium Coaching Membership Program. And what you get from that is the best coaching education program that has been designed by a proven practitioner. And that practitioner is not me. I don't want people to mistake that. And sometimes I think people do. People think the I'm the one that came up with all this. I'm not. Uh, but I vouch for the program because it's something that I have actually used and I've been a member of since the program launched. And it completely changed the way that I coach my own teams. And it has helped me learn about possession-based soccer and has added a tremendous value to all the teams and players that I work with. And it has also been the absolute best investment that I've made when it comes to coaching education. The 343 membership program teaches you a proven possession-based methodology, which comes directly from one of the best coaches in American soccer. And it's a simple program that doesn't confuse you or bog you down with excess or unnecessary information. And it shows you the real work and the real results. And when you sign up, you get access to videos of real games and real training sessions to help you learn how to coach possession-based soccer yourself. You also get 24-7 online access to ebooks, audio lessons, recorded classroom presentations, on-field clinics, and members-only forums for networking and sharing ideas with other 343 coaches. You get all of that for just $295, which is an incredible deal 
and a fraction of the price of what other coaching education courses cost. You can visit 343coaching.com for more benefits and more details about the program. Once again, that is 343coaching.com. All right, that's it for the intro. I hope that you enjoy this very special episode of the 343 podcast with Dr. Joe Matchnick. How's everything going today? Well, great. I've been just listening to uh, and actually watching the video of Essie Bahamas' acceptance speech. Last Sunday or Saturday, he received the Eddie Pearson Award, uh, which is given to uh, outstanding referees and referee administrators. Eddie Pearson was the head of referees for the old NASL, North American Soccer League. And and, uh, Essie, of course, a good friend of mine. Worked with him both indoors and then he worked in MLS when I was in charge of referees there for MLS. So I couldn't go. I couldn't go to the ceremony. It was in Chicago um, because I had two games that day for Fox. And uh, but if you want to have uh, in the future a really good interview for your uh, your show, uh, I would highly recommend uh, Essie. He's now a FIFA instructor. Uh, he's been a you know, at the most recent World Cups, being in charge of the referees, assessing games and all of that. And uh, he's very amenable to, um, you know, talking to people about, you know, probably is one of the top three officiating careers in America. So keep that in mind. Yeah, absolutely. I I was thinking about it the other day that I've never had a, a referee on my show before, and I believed that wholeheartedly for, for quite a while until I remembered that I've had John Mata on the show before. And, <laughs> okay. And, yeah. and we spent actually, He's on the referee committee, right. That's yeah. right, yeah. And, then, yeah. And, and we spent actually a decent chunk of time talking about you know how he kind of rose to the ranks as a referee, and that's what kind of brought him into the, administrat- the administration realm and then catapulted him into the U.S. Soccer, you know, Board of Governance and, and things like that. But I had completely right. forgot that I'd had him on the show, and, and we talked about refereeing. Well, then I'm I'm actually happy that I'm not the first. And uh, but if you and as I said, if you really want to make an impact, you got to get Essie Bahamas on the show. I, I want to tell you a little story though before uh, you ask me some questions because I see you call yourself the Croatian guy. Yep. So. <laughs> So, so in, in 1990, after the World Cup, you know, I was assistant coach, you know, for the World Cup team. And we went to Croatia um, to play, which was what, at that time, I believe the first game Croatia was playing as not, you know, not part of Yugoslavia. But they, and, well, to make a long story short, when we landed there, the State Department met us at the airport and said, do not play the game. Oof. Uh, because uh, the Croatian people were taking the fact that U.S. soccer recognized the Croatian national team as a national team, that in fact that meant USA government was recognizing Croatia as a country, and it wasn't a country yet. Um, and so it was a very interesting time. And, and during that time, while I was in the hotel, uh, I get a phone call to someone who wants to meet you uh, in the lobby. And, you know, it was, I didn't know anybody that I knew really, but I had been coach of the uh, New York Arrows for a short period of time in the indoor league. And one of my players was Val Tuksha. And and uh, the person who met me in the lobby of the hotel was uh, Tuksha's wife's father. <laughs> And, and and he invited me to their home and it was in like an apartment complex and and told me all about the impending revolution. He told me about uh, the statue. I think it's called Banjelicic. Uh, apologize on the pronunciation that they uh, either the Nazis or the Russians took apart and they found the pieces and put it back together and, and put it in the square. And that was the center. You know, I mean, you could smell revolution happening. And, and uh, actually, there's been a couple doctoral theses written about it. You might want to look one up. 
uh, by the uh, Alan Sack, S-A-C-K, and uh, uh, he interviewed me about it. And uh, I had this poster that they gave us, which was like a half USA, half Croatia poster showing this statue on the Croatian side and Disneyland and other, the Empire State Building, Statue of Liberty, you know, on the other. And it was, uh, you know, rather unique experience, but I hope I didn't bore you with that story. Absolutely not. And you actually bring up a very interesting topic because this is something I've, I've talked about on the show. I, I think I've talked about it on, on the show before, but the, the intersection of, of football and politics is, you know, very prevalent in, most countries around the world and for whatever reason you know it's not a big part of american soccer culture you know to to kind of weave in the these other political aspects of it and and i i've said this many times too it, it's almost in some ways i feel like certain people have gotten involved in soccer because it's a way to kind of do the the global po- political scene but outside of the political scene here in america and so you get some people that kind of operate you know, as a, as a high level official, but outside of the American, the like traditional American government. But what, what you just brought up though, is, you know, (laughs) a revolution did happen. And, and that was a humongous, probably humongous, like just moral victory for the Croatian people at that time. Like, Hey, you know, they're going to play a game against us. and, And that means that, you know, this is a real thing. And to to that nation at that time was probably you know you can't even describe it I, I think no I mean the game the game was sold out it was a huge crowd and uh, we 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 lost the game two to one uh, Troy Dyack scored the USA goal off of a corner kick he came up as a defender headed it for a goal um, but I mean then the flags were waving and 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 um, I mean uh, it was it was. It was quite a special experience. A little bit scary, actually. We didn't. We didn't. Uh, we didn't walk the streets, <laughs> um, you know, because we were told pretty much stay indoors. You just didn't know when it when when the when the uh, revolution was going to start. And we left, and it was like a matter of weeks. Was that was that in 1991 then or 1990? I'm not sure. I that must have been. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, I thought it, was, it certainly was after the World Cup. Okay. Uh, and it could have been in the fall of 90 or early 1991. It had to be in the fall of 90 because uh, um, Bob was still coaching, you know, Bob Gansler, and I was still with the team. So, um, you know, and shortly thereafter, Bob wasn't with the team anymore. But anyway, I hope I, you could look up the dates. And yeah. I'm sure you have. You know, exactly when the date of the game was. I think we went from there to East Germany or Poland or someplace. So it was kind of unique. Yeah, what uh, a trip, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, All right, let's let's talk some referee and stuff. Yeah, let's let's do it. Um, I I, I want to get a I want to get a feel for for how you got started in in soccer in general and and figure out what ultimately led you down this this path to becoming you know, one of the, the prominent referee refereeing figures in American soccer. Um, and you know, on a global scale too. Um, but, but at the, at, at what point did, did this, uh, did, did this path to refereeing present itself? Uh, interesting. So I grew up in New York city and we had a very, uh, strong league before the pro leagues came, the German American soccer league in New York, which is, now called Cosmopolitan League. And when I was brought uh, from members of my high school team to the Ukrainian club um, in New York, then I uh, was playing for their junior team. So like the junior team would play at 11 in the morning, the reserves at one, the the so-called varsity, the big team at 2.30 or three. And and it was really, really good soccer. and all ethnic um, soccer and the referees were exceptional. They had to be exceptional uh, because there was no security whatsoever uh, for them. And, you know, there was often incidences. But so I got to watch and I got to know, you know, referees. Uh, I just got to watch them. I was also a huge hockey fan. Uh, and with a high school ID card, you could go to Madison Square Garden the old garden and for 40 cents you could you know sit up in the balcony 
uh, to Ranger games. And at that time, there was only one referee and two linesmen uh, in hockey. And it was very similar to how soccer was officiated. So I just, you know, I don't know. I began to identify with them in some way. And when I went to college, I was a physical education major and then became director of intramurals at Long Island University, at which time I pretty much had to referee everything. Uh, so I refereed intramural uh, basketball, volleyball, flag football, soccer, uh, you know, you name it, and and uh, really liked it. Um, so I joined the uh, officiating uh, group for the Public School Athletic League, and I did some of that. And then I moved to Connecticut in 69, and uh, we were at a jamboree with our teams. I was now coaching New Haven. And uh, we were in a jamboree, and uh, a gentleman by the name of Keith Johnson, he's passed away now. So he comes to all the coaches, and he says, we're short of referees for the uh, Sunday League, the Connecticut State League. We need, uh, we need people. Can you volunteer to do the game, even a game tomorrow, being su uh, Sunday? And so I raised my hand and got assigned to a game. No, no fitness test, no rule book, no written test. Um, you know, just went out there and, you know, and it, I mean, those games were challenging too. Hartford Portuguese against New Britain Falcons, Italian American stars, Vasco da Gama, Portuguese club in Bridgeport, uh, not easy games. So, so, you know, and then I did a lot of college and, and stuff, but I guess my real, Big break was when uh, uh, I got appointed referee in chief for the indoor league, major indoor soccer league, which combined a little hockey. You know, I got the job because Walter Chiswitz knew that I had coached hockey, interested hockey in hockey. I, you know, knew the penalty situations um, and all of that. And we had, you know, we had to develop a rule book that combined a little bit of hockey, a little bit of soccer with the time penalties and stuff. Uh, so when I got that job and then put me in a position, I refereed the first indoor game, MISL, indoor game, a couple of all-star games, a uh, game in Madison Square Garden, which was a big thrill for me um, growing up in New York City. And then uh, I did the a lot of college stuff, and, and uh, I did the 88 final uh, between Indiana and Howard. And, um, but, uh, you know, but... With the indoor, I hope I'm not giving you too long of an answer. No, not at all. With the indoor, um, got to know a lot of the referees, obviously, and we had to put together a program. Uh, we had the first full-time program. After a couple of years, there was you know, a, a competition between the indoor and the outdoor, who was going to get the best refs. And so we offered full-time jobs to five or six refs. Uh, Bill Maxwell, Herb Silva, Gino DiPolito, uh, others. And and so we had the first full-time referee program in America. Um, and I got a little bit of a reputation for being organized and managing referee programs. Um, so when M MLS started and, and U.S. soccer wasn't quite ready to put together a program for the demands of that league uh, after the first season – I got a call from uh, Sunil Gulati on Labor Day, actually. Uh, you know, we need you to come in and set up a referee program with with U.S. soccer um, for MLS. And so I, I worked 15 years for MLS um, and then uh, retired. Um, and then uh, a couple of years later, I got a wonderful break because um, at MLS, I used to do uh, – a broadcast seminar. So be before the season start, they would bring in all the broadcasters and uh, for, you know, really technical stuff. And I would get one hour to speak on possible changes in the laws of the game, the disciplinary committee, things like that. And they always put me on after lunch when everybody was, <laughs> they're, they're, everybody's like falling asleep, you know? So I had to make it entertaining and, uh, I would bring up coaches and give them the flag and try to teach them the signals and linesmen. We call them linesmen back then, linesmen signals. And so it made it fun. And, and the guy who ran that, his name was Michael Cohen. And not the Michael Cohen that we're, <laughs> is currently in the news. But um, And when, when Fox started the uh, new channel, FS1, FS2, 
Michael was hired as a consultant to help them uh, with the soccer part. Uh, and they had already, with NFL coverage, they had you know been in touch with Mike Pereira. Mike was doing the, uh, you know, explaining the referee decisions in NFL. So they wanted a soccer guy who they thought was really, you know, as important because um, even for their own broadcasters to understand what the referee was calling. So um, I was really fortunate. I've been doing that now, I think, six years and, uh, you know, got to do the World Cup and Women's World Cup in Vancouver. And I'm looking forward to this summer's World Cup and Gold Cup uh, where, uh, you know, because they're running at the same time, uh, it's going to be kind of a, quite a challenge. Man, there's there's so many things that you that you mentioned that we could probably dive in head first and talk for hours and hours and hours about. Um, but you you mentioned something, and I I have to believe you mentioned it because it, it's it's significant to you, and and I want to go back and explore it. You mentioned Indiana versus Howard, mm-hmm. and, and I'm curious why why you mentioned that out of you know all the games that you've refereed. That that was the only like actual game that you mentioned. Well, it was the final. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what, what, so what it was, was the significance of that, though? Uh, well, it was, first of all, uh, you know, to even get assigned to the final, that's, that's uh, uh, for one of a, you know, it's an honor. Yeah. And, and uh, I called, uh, I made a call for a penalty kick in the approximate 31st minute, uh, which resulted in Indiana scoring what turned out to be the only goal. And, and um, you know, it was, uh, at the time, uh, considered a controversial decision. It wouldn't be considered today, and, and I do have tape of it. Uh, it wouldn't be controversial today, but the player had already cut, and he was now going away from the goal when he was fouled. Um, and back then, you, you know, to most penalty kicks, the, you had to be going to goal uh, and had a real goal-scoring opportunity. Anyway, it was controversial. Uh, and the game was televised, but not live. And, and so I had to wait about a month, uh, before, uh, no one, you know, we, nobody gave you a, a copy back then video or whatever. So wait a month to see how ESPN was going to, uh, uh, describe the decision. And Seamus Mallon was the color play by play color guy. He was the color guy. And at first he said, oh, that's a tough call. And then when the replay came out and he said, oh, I guess he got him. Uh, but today, if you look at the call and if it went to VAR, it would be hundred percent penalty kick. So I don't, not that I was ahead of my time, but, uh, it was, it was controversial decision. And, and, you know, anytime a penalty kick decides the outcome of a game, it's always controversial in the same way it would have been controversial if you didn't call it and it decided the outcome of the game. So, so, uh, that's why I mentioned it the decisions that referees make, they stick with us for, for uh, forever. <laughs> and, and the way that you can just automatically recall uh, the minute and, and, and just describe the, the scene at the, at the time is quite remarkable. And I think people forget, um, all right. Maybe, maybe they don't forget. Well, maybe maybe they actually, don't understand. Yeah, but, no, I actually, I actually use the example, uh, that I, we just talked about in, in some of the clinics that I do and, and I do have the, I do have it on uh, on my computer, so I can you know I can show it, and it's good it's good to uh, uh, the audience you know you don't want to be like <laughs> have them thinking well this guy doesn't make any mistakes everybody makes mistakes and 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 controversial decisions are a big part of soccer, so so it's a it's a good piece that you can use in a clinic and 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 get the you know the audience feels a little empathy for you. You feel empathy for them. So you, so it shows them how you understand that everything you do out there as a referee, because the game is so low scoring, uh, it turn, could turn out to be critical, match critical. Yeah. Just the other day at my association meeting, we were talking about um, some of the changes that have been made to, you know, dog. So, and, and those situations and, and the, the instructor asked, asked the room, Hey, has anybody experienced this within the last year? And I raised my hand. And I said, yeah, I, I've experienced it and I got it wrong. And everybody kind of looked at me and I, I felt like the air just kind of like leave the room and, and everybody's like, like what? Like you got, like you're admitting that you got something wrong. Like, yeah, I got it wrong. 
And <laughs> yeah, I just uh, it's, a really, it's a really important quality uh, to analyze your own game and, and, and to come to grips with the fact that you got something wrong. But that's how that's how you get better. Um, and, and not only not only uh, from your own mistakes, but if you watch a lot of soccer and you grew up, as I did, watching all of these referees in the German-American League. And and so I was already thinking back then, you know, if I was the referee, how would I have dealt with that situation? So so that's how you learn, um, you know, to referee because you just can't um, rely on your own game experience. You have to watch other referees and watch games and and analyze plays. So I hope that that's been part of my contribution to. I guess we have 140,000 referees in the United States, and and some of them uh, would be watching the World Cup, and if they if or even, you know, people thinking about becoming a referee, um, you know, if I could properly explain a call, um, then that might be helpful in some way. 140,000 referees. That's, that's a pretty remarkable number. Um, yeah. I, I was talking with, a, with another referee the other day about, you know, the biggest problem that, that referees have or that we have with referees is retention. So how, how hard is it to retain 140,000 referees and what are some of the challenges in, in, in making sure that, you know, all these people feel like they, they want to come back and continue refereeing? Well, it's not the same. Unfortunately, it's not the same 140,000, uh, of the 140,000, you know, uh, uh, these are estimated numbers, 120,000 are 16 years or age or younger. Wow. So, so, so um, and, and you're aware, I'm sure everybody is aware that, um, the, uh, grief that some of the young referees take refereeing youth soccer, um, from, from the sidelines, from coaches and also spectators, some of which are parents, uh, leads a lot of them to abandon, um, you know, abandon the project because it's just too much. And it's out of control. Some States that's uh, so serious and some States that they have like a uh, silent weekend. Uh, where, you know, the parents know that they come to the game, they're not allowed to say anything uh, or else the uh, field marshal or whatever will uh, remove them from the sideline or, or you know, prevent them from coming to other games. So it's a big issue. Retention is a big issue. Um, but now, you know, I mean, there's a little bit more to refer everybody. I mean, you know, there's a great... Uh, motivation factor to be to be better uh, to become the best that you can be but also now at the end of that uh, rainbow is a pot of gold because of the organization pro pro who um, uh, organize and manage the referees for mls the usl and whatever i mean there's now bona fide professional careers uh in america for a competent soccer referee with with uh you know with uh football, basketball type salary. So, so, uh, if you're good, um, you have a chance, especially if you get in young, you got a chance for 20, 25 year career, um, officiating soccer, which, you know, never existed for us guys, uh, back then. Yeah. That's a, that's another good point. Um, when I, when I was making the decision, you know, what, am, what am I going to do with my soccer career after, you know, my glorious junior college soccer career ended? Um, you know, I, I decided to go with coaching instead of refereeing because I wholeheartedly believed that I could make it further with coaching. And then five, six, seven years into coaching, I realized, well, you know, the obstacles in front of me to, to climb to the top of the American coaching, you know, world, it's going to be exponentially harder than it would have been if I would have started as a young referee and stuck with it. And, and so now I'm 31 and going back into the referee track. I'm like, oh, like we'll, we'll see how far I can go. Let's see how far, see how high I can go, I guess, is, is where I'm at now. The coaching will help you. Yeah. Uh, you know, and we always talk to young referees and say, if you have, a, uh, have an opportunity to coach and vice versa, um, uh, referees should coach and coaches should referee that that will help you be a better referee because you understand you understand the um, the service uh, that you're providing to the game a little bit more. 
and and so it's really important important and i think it's really one of the factors that helped me the most uh you know because i did coach uh in college and and then later one year when the in the indoor league and then with the national team teams because a five-a-side team as well so uh, you just you just know what is expected of you as a referee having had you know having coached so you see the game a little differently um you you uh you just get a better feel for it uh and any combination of playing and coaching which later goes on into becoming a referee uh that's that that's all to the benefit of not only the referee's performance uh but the game in general was it difficult for you to balance the the coaching and refereeing careers or was it just something that you that you knew you just you wanted to dedicate your life to to the sport or to multiple sports it sounds like so um well <laughs> now um you know I, I i'm 76 years old now so i i grew up in a time when soccer was you know in its infancy really uh and there were many many different opportunities so um and and you there you know for example, the soccer camp that we started in 77, 78. Um, I mean, that, that had between the coaching career, the refereeing and soccer camp, you can make a living. Uh, it was not possible for, for everybody to do that. But, you know, I, I kind of focused in on that and made that happen. Um, and, and I don't know, it's been, it's been great. So uh, I really don't know what else to say about it. <laughs> Hey, sit tight. We are going to hear a quick message from our sponsor, Bounce Athletics. Bounce Athletics are offering you an additional 10% discount just for listening to this episode of the 343 podcast. When I spoke to Zach, the co-founder of Bounce Athletics, he mentioned one of the most common problems that coaches and players and teams have when it comes to their training equipment. This is what he had to say. Finding goals that are portable, um, that can be moved from environment to environment quickly and perform just as well on grass as they do on turf as they do on hardwood or, or wherever you're at. Thankfully, that problem has been solved thanks to the Dynamo goals made by Bounce Athletics. They have revolutionized people's training sessions. For those that don't know, they're a three by five, all aluminum frame. They fold flat in like five seconds and they you pop them back up and a couple seconds. The moment I saw the Dynamo goals in action, I was totally convinced that these were the best goals on the market. And since using the Dynamo goals, I haven't even touched the other goals that I have had for years. And I was curious about who else was already using these. So I asked Zach, and here's what he had to say. Everything from recreational programs that are using them for their 3v3 and 4v4 to college and pro teams that have 20 of them. 343 listeners get an additional 10% discount when you mention the 343 podcast. Just email info at Bounce Athletics to begin the order process. All right, let's get back to the show. I, I want to go back to to the ethnic leagues that you that you started in, and that is a major part of American soccer history that often gets forgotten about when people try to start the conversation, you know, at the 94 world cup, or they try to start the conversation at the, at, at the 96, um, uh, major league soccer, you know, their first kickoff, mm -hmm. but the ethnic leagues have, you know, a, a, a very important part, or they play a very important part of soccer history for our country. Mm -hmm. And, and you got to experience it in a number of different ways, it sounds like as a fan, as a player, yeah. as an administrator, as a referee. So what, what are some of the, you know, the, the, the key moments that, that you recall when you, when you think about that time and it sounds like the late sixties and early seventies. No, actually, actually late fifties, early sixties. Wow. There we go. Um, yeah. So, uh, my first, you know, as I told, I, my high school teammates took me, uh, to the Ukrainian club in New York city and so that would be 58, 59. Um, and so the first thing is, I mean, I, the, every Sunday we had a game at places that I did not even know existed before then. <laughs> so so, so uh, Trogsnek Oval, Sports Friend Oval, Metropolitan Oval, Eintracht Oval, Zuriga Oval, New Farmers Oval. These were all private fields 
uh, in New York City, the uh, Schutzen Park, Farches Grove, uh, where uh, typically there would be a restaurant or a bar um, attached to it, and the field would be in the back, and the fans would come, and and you'd get you know a thousand, twelve hundred, fifteen hundred, depending on the game. If the Ukrainians played the Greek Americans, we would have sometimes three thousand, um, and and I mean it was. No stands to speak of. There'd be a railing around the field. Everybody would be up against the railing. Um, and the fields were you know, hardly, there was no AstroTurf or anything like that. So New York City fields were all dirt, uh, crushed, uh, cinder, you know. I mean, if you made a slide tackle, you'd be picking the stuff out of your knees. Um, it was it was really, really, uh, uh, and, 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 you know, it was only was like, 10, 15 years after the war. So there was still great animosity between the ethnic groups. Um, and, and many of the people that came to the games were, uh, you know, displaced persons in Europe and had to go to Canada or South America before coming to America. So there was a lot of, <laughs> there was a lot of interesting situations. I saw a lot of games that didn't finish. <laughs> I didn't expect you to say that, but that's, I, yeah, I can no, imagine that happening. In fact, uh, the German American league had, uh, a newspaper, uh, the German newspaper would publish all the scores and all the, uh, results for, you know, Monday and Tuesday from all the different divisions. And so I, one of the words I got to know quickly was abgebroken. And that means the game didn't finish. <laughs> and so that must've happened frequently then. Yeah, no, I, very frequently, actually. That's funny. I'll have to, yeah. I have, I have a German roommate. I'll have to bring that. Up. I'll, I'll have to. I'm going to listen back to that word and then, and then. Yeah, Abgebroken. <laughs> and so during, I mean, during that time, so late '50s through the '60s, and then, and then into the '70s, um, you know, soccer was especially in the, in the New York area. I mean, it was a thing. Like it wasn't, it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't. There's a subculture. It was, a, it was a definite subculture that no one, you know, the, the major newspapers didn't report it. And if you weren't part of it, you didn't know it existed. Huh. So, and it was, un, you know, it was unbelievable. And then, and then, and uh, the New York Ukrainians, I was the backup goalkeeper on their U S open cup uh, championship, 65, 66. And, and so uh, and they put together a really, really good team. Gordon Bradley. Does that name mean anything to you? I've heard Gordon it before. Bradley. Yeah. Well, Gordon Bradley uh, later coached the Cosmos. Uh, Ted Purden. We used to fly players down from Toronto. They would come in on Sunday just to, you know, do the game. They would get paid and go and fly back. But we had a really, really good team, and we won that year. I, I was the backup. But shortly then after was the beginning of the first professional leagues. Um, and I, I'm not good with the alphabet soup of, <laughs> of, of uh, names, but there were two of them competing. Um, and then my friend Walter Chiswitz, who I got to know playing with the Ukrainians, so he went and played with Philadelphia Spartans, which were owned by the Rooney family uh, that owns the Pittsburgh Steelers and and you know, and there were different leagues competing, and now you had more more players coming into the country because it was an opportunity to make money. And and then the pro league started, and then soccer began. You know, there'd be a game on television or something every once in a while, which never happened before. I mean, the first game I ever saw on TV, I, I was actually working in the supermarket because I did that as a part time job, and I convinced the manager to let me go home on Saturday afternoon to watch Wide World of Sports televise the 61 or 62 FA Cup final, Tottenham Hotspur against Leicester City. And it was a game in which there were still no substitutions allowed um, in, the, in, in, in football. And the big part of the game that I remember was Leicester guy broke his leg and, and, and they, put, they had to put him out on the wing and he played as a walking player. Oh, um, and and then later it came out in the press that the leg was actually broken. Uh, I mean, it wasn't compound fracture or anything like that, but still. And because there was no no you know no subs back then, the game was a really really different. 
what was the what was the mood like amongst all those ethnic leagues and teams and and the people that were part of that subculture when something like NASL started to surface was, was did that energize everybody did they see this competition how, well, how how was that received at the at the time do you remember well it had i think it had uh, for one of a, a better word a negative um uh effect because it minimized uh the the ethnic games um and then of course the immigration patterns also changed uh and and and, and different immigrants from different parts of the world came to America and still have ethnic leagues all over the country. But um, the, the beginning of the pro leagues kind of minimized those um, uh, leagues and those games. Uh, and they became more almost like recreational Sunday activities rather than uh, professional games. It's, it's also funny to think how many of those teams still exist even though it, it is like you just mentioned more in a recreational sense now but like those those teams like the greek americans i just interviewed a guy the other day who he's i think he's 29 years old and he you know played for the greek americans uh yeah just a few years ago like the, those, those... And, 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 and there'd be greek american teams and i know there's one in san francisco uh that won the open cup once with uh, lotha hacienda coaching them um, and so, of course, there were the New York Greek Americans, and then there's Hellenic, another uh, Greek club, and uh, there's you know there's <laughs> there are Ukrainian clubs too, all over America, and Polish clubs. But but it's it's Sunday soccer now, real Sunday soccer. It's not it's not it's recreational pursuit. No one's making any money on it. No, we're we're all we're all in it just for. Uh just for the the pride and the culture and I, I grew up watching uh i grew up watching my dad playing croatian only tournaments so they would you know they would throw their own like little festivals sure. on um on croatia's uh independence day and a couple other yeah. times throughout the year but you know teams would fly from toronto they'd fly from cincinnati from tucson all over and, and it was you, you had to have a certain number of croatian people on your team in order in order to play and that number started out like, you know, the full roster and then it dwindled, you know, down to like you only needed to have seven or six guys that were Croatian. And then all of a sudden it bumped back up to, you know, you needed a full team of of Croatians. And now it's it's a it's a small goals tournament. So they still do the festival. It's like a three day festival, um, but they play 5v5 and, and then there's like a concert at night and, and, and then a big, big street party at the Croatian embassy. Um or embassy? I don't know if it's the embassy. Croatian Hall, uh, in in Southern California. So it's pretty cool. So so you you must have been disappointed with the referee decision of handling, wow. uh, in, <laughs> you know, in the in the final, and and I think that decision impacted greatly one of the law changes that um, have, is going to come effect um, June first, but. FIFA has done, uh, IFAB and FIFA have done quite a bit to try to clear up handling. And and one of the things they've spelled out for the first time is that um, if, if, and I'm going to read it to you, uh, the, the following will not usually be a free kick unless they are one of the above situations. The ball, oh, the following will not usually be a free kick. Unless they are one of the the ball touches a player's hand or arm directly from their own head, or body or foot, or the head, body, foot of another player who is close or nearby. So that would have given that would have given the referee in that game the opportunity to say that the ball got deflected off of another player and hit this player in the hand or arm, and that the penalty should not have been given. Oh, you struck a nerve, Joe. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I got so lucky on, you know, because the pressure on, on, uh, in the TV end of it was, was to, they constantly wanted me to predict what the decision would be. Uh, and on this one, <laughs> on this one, I said, I, I, if you remember, I said something to the effect, um, He's going to, and he had to look at it three times on a monitor, which made it really scary because if you have to look at it three times, then it's not a clear or obvious error. So, so, and, and the whole thing, VAR, is to clear up 
get correct clear and obvious errors. So the referee had to look at it like three times. And then I said, based on the other handling violations that have been called in this tournament, he has to give it a penalty. And and that's and and that's where it came out. Yep. Yeah. Are you still with me? I'm still with you. I'm just thinking yeah. I'm thinking in my head and, and one of the actually the, the funny funnier moments I've had since uh since that game is I remember I was refing a high school J junior varsity match and the coach was you know kind of jokingly talking about a, a handball and and saying you know how how he how he feels like oh you know we're being robbed because you didn't give us the handball but he was kind of kidding with me and i was like don't talk to me about handballs and being robbed i'm croatian so <laughs> yeah <laughs> it, was, it was a funny moment but um yeah. on that note since you brought it up i i, I would kind of like to get your thoughts on on rule changes and and, and maybe even you know specifically how something like that happens like how does a rule change become like or how do you propose a rule change because there's been uh, you just mentioned a few minutes ago we've gone from not allowing any substitutes at all to now you know adding a fourth substitute in extra time and you know tons of rule changes over the course of of the last uh, you know decades so how does a rule change happen well, the game changes first of all. So, so, and sometimes the 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 way the game is changed as far as it's being played, you 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 got to adjust the rules to you know to make sense. But you're familiar with IFAB, right? International Football Association Board. Yes. Okay, so so that's an organization which ultimately are in charge of writing the rules, the laws, and. So about four or five years ago, they, they for the first time, opened that committee up to some panels. Uh, and they have a, 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 a referee panel and I believe a panel of coaches and players. And one of the players that's been really, really involved is uh, Van Boston. Do you remember the Dutch player Van Boston? Yes. And, and so he has been... Um, I mean, he's taking it as far as like uh, not wanting offside. You know, I mean, he's 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 a little bit uh, on the left. He's all the way to the left on how to change the game. But he and players like that uh, are, are proposing these changes based upon what they're seeing and and uh, what um, the different federations around the world come and say. Okay, there's a problem with this. You know, with the game, and I think, of course, TV. I mean, who would have ever thought there would be VAR or any video review uh, in in uh, in soccer? I mean, just t- ten years ago, it would people would have poo pooed that idea, um, and, and they were, it will ruin the game and da 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 da. So, I mean, the the game has got so fast and the TV coverage got so good that you saw clear and obvious errors. Uh, they would show you, I mean, the world cup had 32 cameras. So one of those angles would, would get, you know, get the definitive view of what really happened. And that view may not have been the referee's view. So he makes, or she makes a decision based on their view on the angle. Um, and, and then now we have someone else who can look at, any one of 32 other, 31 other angles, or 32 actually, and and identify an angle which may show um, that the referee made the wrong, made a clear and obvious error because the angle that he or she had wasn't the, wasn't the right one. Where do the you best think? angles are often from behind the goal. That too, uh, and of course we don't have you know no referees behind the goal even, but even when we did have the additional assistant referee on the goal line that wasn't much help yeah the best the best view for coaches is actually behind the goal too like like the tactical cam that i think um is offered by i I think fox offered like a tactical cam during the world cup you can watch the games from you know that like a goalie's view so that was always the best the best way to watch Um, yeah well yeah it's it's, uh it's a you know i mean that's the penalty area is where all the action is right yep so so, so you get to see as close as possible um, what makes a goal or what makes a challenge successful. 
Joe, I, at the end of every interview, I always ask people, what do, what do people need to know? And I want to, I want to really tailor this to refereeing and I, and I want you to maybe think about what coaches need to know, um, about referees and, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you a second to think about it and I'll, I'll, I'll talk here for just a minute. And, uh, the other day I, I tweeted out the, the link to the rule changes that will go into effect on June 1st. And I, and I, mm-hmm. and I coupled that with a message saying coaches, like you need to learn these rules now, because if you're learning them on the field, when they happen in real time, you're going to be very upset and you're going to be disappointed that you didn't learn these sooner. And, and it got actually a pretty good reaction from, from coaches. And, and they're like, Oh wow. Like, you know, I do need to learn these. These are, these are pretty significant changes that are about to happen. And that's going to change the way that my, my team is, is going to be able to play. And, and so, you know, if I, if well, I think, I think you got the first part, uh, really right. Uh, and, and the truth, truth be told, uh, there are many, many coaches that don't pay enough attention to the, the laws of the game. And then as such, their players don't know the laws of the game either. Uh, and that goes up to, you know, pretty high level. Um, and, and so they challenge referee decisions, which are hundred percent correct, uh, because they don't know the, they don't know the laws or their most recent law changes. Um, so the, the education component on the part of coaches and players, uh, is huge. Uh, that's why like at the world cup and every major competition, and we, we, we did it in MLS also was we would go to every team, uh, and have a meeting, um, with video and say, you know, these were the controversial decisions last year. And this is why the referee got it right or got it wrong. And here's the rule. Um, and so that's an important component for, every team's preparation. How can you play a game when you don't know the rules? <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and especially with, you know, rules changing every year now. Um, mm-hmm. Not that they didn't change every year before, but it seems like, no, but, that, but, but you're right. The changes were never this major. Yeah. I mean, two years ago, there was a complete rewrite of the book uh, and they spent so much time on it and still didn't get everything correct. And there, you know, there are some people that will, I mean, correct, perfect, not not correct, right or wrong, but didn't get it perfect. There are still some people that even with these changes, 2019-20, are saying, hey, you know, you didn't really clarify handling. Um, you know, I mean, so they've done their best to try. I was hoping that with handling, because there was some public, there was some um, preview of how they were going to do handling, that any handling – that was when the hand was away from the body, four o'clock on one side, eight o'clock on the other side. You understand what I'm trying to picture? Yep. Okay. Is that anything above four o'clock, eight o'clock is, is handling, whether it's, you know, whether any handling, whether it's deliberate, intentional, that doesn't, uh, or accidental doesn't, is not a factor anymore. Uh, they try to do that, I think, by using the word uh, naturally. Um, the player naturally makes himself bigger or something to that effect, but it's not def- clear four o'clock, eight o'clock, which for me would make it clear. I know there's it, every, every time they do, uh, you know, a, a change or an update, it just seems, it, it almost seems like there's purposefully a, a gray area that is, that is left surrounding those, those. Oh, that's see, that's fun. That's a fun topic to talk about. So there's part of, you know, Part of the, the whole discussion of VAR, would it eliminate the gray area? Yep. Because, because for some, the gray area is what makes the game. You know, I mean, there are, you leave the stadium and you're talking obviously about the great players and the great play, but also these referee decisions which are in the gray area. You know, did he get the penalty right? Did he get it wrong? And with VAR, you, <laughs> we thought at first when VAR was announced, that would eliminate all the gray area and then all the controversy and we would have nothing to talk about. Uh, the reverse has happened. The opposite. Uh, we've still got uh, controversy and lots more to talk about. Yeah. It's, it's almost like it's become even more heated, uh, a, a more heated debate when a, when a VAR decision happens versus, you know, before the, you know, the referee gives a penalty and, and we just have to live with it. Um, 
but now it, it's it's just opened up a whole new avenue of discussion with all the camera angles and everybody you know zooming in and micro inspecting and everything. It's I, I don't know I, wh- where do you, where where is this all going? Uh, wh- what's the next what's the next evolution for for soccer refereeing in your opinion? Well, not only for soccer, but do you know the NFL? I mean, we had this major controversy on on the pass interference uh, call in New Orleans game, right? I, so, I remember, yeah. Yeah, so Mike Pereira, who uh, I've gotten to know pretty well because of Fox, so he came out and he tweeted that we need a referee, we need one more referee, and he shouldn't be on the field. He should be upstairs in front, you know, in front of all the monitors. And and I said to him, I tweeted, in fact, Mike Pereira just uh, said that the NFL needs soccer's VAR, and and, and so. I mean, we're, we're heading in that direction. I think there's a minor league baseball league right now that's going to have uh, virtual balls and strikes, no umpire. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I remember I, I was watching a baseball game at a, at a little pub that's down the street from my house, and, you know, they they show on the screen in real time, like when the when the pitch is thrown, you know, where it lands in, in, the, in yeah. the outer strike zone. And it's like, okay, well, how long until the, re- the, the umpire is, is irrelevant? Because you can just call that from a booth. That's right. And the only thing that's preventing it is the strong umpire's union. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I've kind of, I've yeah. kind of jokingly predicted that, that, soccer referees will be replaced by you know artificial intelligence or 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 some something of the sort of robots of, of cameras whatever but i just don't know how long that's going to be maybe you know 15 20 years but it could well, be changed change comes very quickly now in, in in many many things i mean we have cars that drive themselves yep. so um having a artificial intelligence referee might not be that far away yeah, I've I've kind of just envisioned like a like a camera that you know can stay with the second to last defender or the offside line and and you know whenever whenever needs to be made it's just it's a camera it's 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 artificial intelligence it knows right and wrong there's no there's yeah. no subjectivity there. So. Well, the problem is that there's so many things that are, are are not black and white. I mean, offside is black and white for the most part. If you if you're not looking at you know did the player. Um, involve himself where he distracted the other player or whatever. But most of the decisions, black or white, um, he's either ahead of the second to last defender or not at the moment the ball's played. But so many other things are judgment calls. Um, and so uh, there'll be a, somebody's whoever's going to build that computer to artificially <laughs> uh, make those judgment calls, I don't know. Um, I, I want to go back and, and ask you that question. What do, what do people need to know? Because, you know, we kind of talked about it from a referee standpoint, but you might have a, a different answer. You, you can attack it from a, a coach, a fan, a, uh, administrator, whatever perspective. But if you, if you had one message to get out to, to the American soccer world, what, what do you think people need to know? Well, I think that's a good question. And, and, uh, you know, I got asked just that on the air last week, uh, doing a Liga Mex game. Uh, at the very end of the game, um, there was a penalty kick decision that was a goal kick correctly decided by the referee as a goal kick. Um, and the um, play-by-play kind of said, and I, I have a studio here in my house, so so I'm kind of I'm in touch with them um, as they're broadcasting the game. And and so he said, Dr. Joe. Uh, there's tremendous pressure on a part of the referee to tell us about the pressure. And I said, we just saw the pressure. I mean, it's, it's, uh, the game at that time was one, one, um, it's a Monterey game it was one, one. And, and they were in like the 89th minute and he's got a penalty kick decision. Uh, and what could be more pressure in, because the game is, you know, so low scoring that the decision impacts the outcome Either way, that's an important thing, too. Either way. So if he calls it and he's wrong, that affects the outcome. If he doesn't call it and he should have called it, that affects the outcome. So either way, it's a tremendous pressure situation. And he's got to get the right angle. And with a little bit of help from VAR, maybe he does. But I think what everybody needs to know is how really, really tough it is. Um, It's still, in my opinion, 
uh, among the toughest games to officiate. Um, look, I mean, they have three guys with whistles in the basketball uh, in a court that, you know, probably probably you can fit inside the penalty area. I'm not sure about that, but I think that's actually right. I think it can. Yeah, yeah, probably. I've never even thought of that before. So, <laughs> yeah. You know, it scared me the the first time I I experienced this, but there's a league or an association in San Diego, California, that uses a three whistle system for soccer. And it's yeah, scary. I've heard. I heard about it. It's in Pennsylvania and new parts of New Jersey too, I think. My God, it scared the hell out of me. I was playing forward for, I was uh, with my junior college team and, and the referee who I thought was the linesman, um, he, he blew his whistle and called me for offside. And I, I looked at him like, why does this guy have a whistle? And it scared, yeah. the, scared the crap out of me. And then I, I figured out that they, yeah, that's how they run their association down there. Super weird. Now, and that, and that might take out some of the, um, personality um you know i mean when when you see these high level games and say okay this referee's from argentina this referee is from england for example or brazil versus england and the games are played so differently in those countries so the refereeing is a little different and you got some of the personality of the referee impacts how the game is officiated um and so with the three whistle system or even two whistles back then remember the two whistle the the uh, dual system that was used in some colleges and high schools. So even with that, it takes the personality and the background and the experience uh, of the referee out of the, out of the uh, formula of how the game is done. And I think three whistles, I, 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 to be quite frank, I've never seen a game with three whistles. So I, it's hard for me to say, but my, my, my gut feeling is that there would there'd hard, be hardly any game flow because of so many whistles, but I don't know. Yeah, they, I think a common complaint about referees is, you know, we're, we want to be the stars of the show or we're kind of, we're worried about our own ego out there. And so imagine giving three guys that opportunity to, to, to be the ones in charge. It's uh it's definitely interesting. Um, all right. I, I feel like we, we, you know, scratched the surface on so many things and we probably, we probably could have, uh, you know, gone an hour on, on any of those topics that we touched on. Um, I'm curious if there's, if there's anything else that you, you feel like you, you wanted to talk about coming into this interview or expected to talk about that we didn't quite get to. Well, I think in our, uh, email or Twitter correspondence, you, you know, you indicated you wanted to talk about refereeing. So, uh, I'm kind of glad that we, um, we did focus on that because some people say, how can you talk for an hour about refereeing? <laughs> uh, you know, so that, that that's like when I started the goalkeeper camp, everybody said, what are you going to do for a week? There's nothing to learn after one day. You know, what are you going to do? Um, but it turned out that there was a lot more than meets the eye. So, I mean, th- we could talk about some days in the future. We could talk about the indoor league. We could talk about the 1990 World Cup team. Uh, the five-a-side team, which won the bronze medal, which nobody knows about, um, which uh, had players on that team that became, um, you know, regulars for the 90 World Cup team. Todd Ramos, Peter Vermees, Bruce Murray, Mike Windishman, uh, Dave Anoli, um, Eric Eichmann, um, you know, so anyway. Yeah, no, I, I, I'd love, I'd love to have, you know, multiple, multiple interviews with you because there's, there's obviously so many topics that we can talk about. And, and I, I, I should probably mention too, that your name has been brought up by a number of people that have been guests on this show before, and they all speak in, incredibly highly of you and, uh, the work that you've done over, over the course of your career. And, and you're a very, very important key, key member of American soccer history and, and, you know, I, I probably wouldn't be doing it justice to just say thank you, but but thank you for, well, for everything I, that you've done. Thank you. Uh, that's quite nice of you to say that. Uh, I very much appreciated it. Um, it's like I said, I was there when it, you know, started to happen. So, um, you know, it was, I guess, easy for me to be very much involved. And as such, I got to meet a lot of great people and, and, and you know still friends with a lot of them today so it's it's nice of you to say that 
Yeah, you're, you're, you were definitely a trailblazer. There, there was nobody, there was no path for you to follow and, and you had to create your own, your own way to do it. And you mentioned that you, you know, you, you could do the camps, you could do the coaching, you can do the referee. And you're like, heck, if I combine all three of these, I can make a career. I can make a living out of this. <laughs> so that's pretty cool yeah. that you did that. Yeah. And I'll tell you one more uh, thing. Uh, during my indoor experience, the commissioner of that league was Earl Foreman, who, who owned, uh, the Virginia Squires of the ABA and pieces of the Washington Redskins. And he owned that Oakland uh, part owner of the Oakland team in that original alphabet soup um, league before NASL. So, but he taught me so much about league administration and uh, um, you know, about owners and referees and policies uh, that that really helped me a lot too. So uh, if uh, if I had to and you know identify very important people in my life, he certainly would be one of them. That's very cool. Um, I'm, I'll, I'll link to to some places where people can find out more about you. Obviously, your Twitter account. Um, and then somebody yesterday chimed in about. Uh, another conversation I was in chimed in about your camps. Um, so if there, if there's ever, if there's anything else that I need to link to, just shoot me a, shoot me a message and I'll make sure I incorporate that into the introduction that I do for the podcast. And then also in the written portion on the website. All right. Thank you. All right, Dr. Joe, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. It's really been a fun conversation. Thank cool. you. Very cool. All right. Talk yeah. to you later. All right. Thank you for listening to another episode of the 343 podcast. And a big thank you to our sponsor, Bounce Athletics. I also want to leave you with one note from one of our members of the 343 coaching education program. His name is Thomas, and he's been a member for quite a while. And this is what he had to say. If you want to play insanely good with your team and start to understand the possession and positional game, this will give you a head start. I have tried the material on three ordinary teams, and after a year, they totally dominate the local teams. After two years, they are among the best in the region. The program 343 offers is not a complicated curriculum. It's actually simpler than you might think. But instead of more, you have to go deep in every detail. Thomas, thank you so much for that beautiful review, and I hope that everybody else finds that valuable. If you want more information about the 343 Coaching Education Program, the program that helps support and fund this podcast, you can visit 343coaching.com. All right, we'll catch you guys next time here on the podcast. Thank you so much for listening.